Second Timothy chapter 4, that my job description may be summarized with the words, preach the word. But it goes on to say, after that, preach the word, that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they shall be turned to fables. And so we have it today, that men are again turned to fables, and though that warning was made in the first century, it's still true today. And I want to deliver you from those fables, the Lord helping me. This morning we looked at the fact that there is a common scheme of Bible interpretation and prophetic understanding of Israel that's contrary to Scripture. And that is that God still has a national, physical people, and the church, made up of believers among Jews and Gentiles, is not that people. But in fact, his favorite people are the Jews, and they will once again, one day in the millennium, a thousand-year reign on earth, be restored to preeminence, and we Gentiles will be second-class citizens in that so-called millennial kingdom. We saw that God did indeed, after 2,000 years, choose Abram and Isaac and Jacob after him, and a great nation came from those three men. They were his people, Israel, and he blessed them abundantly, revealed himself to them, gave them his law and his commandments, that exceeded all the laws and writings of all nations, and was their God, and they were his people. And he blessed them with many promises, some conditional and some unconditional, but those unconditional ones were through Abraham and his seed, or through David, that are all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we saw that many of the covenants and promises made to Israel were conditional, and the nation did not keep them, and so Jesus Christ came, and said that their house was left to them desolate, and that he was taking the kingdom of God from them, and giving it to a nation that would bring forth fruits, therefore, and those that nation is us, the Gentiles, and therefore we have the kingdom of God, as we had read earlier this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, a kingdom which cannot be moved, and is to abide forever, and it's in that kingdom that we worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And we ended on Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where Paul said, Beware of the concision. And he was ridiculing the Jewish rite of circumcision by calling it a mutilation in that verse. And the next verse he said, But we, Jews and Gentiles, believers in Christ, are the true circumcision. And then he goes on to describe those true Israelites in three descriptive terms there in Philippians 3, 3. Now, I appear quite angry and sarcastic in preaching a message like this, and there's a reason for that. And if Paul were here, he would. And if Jesus were here, he would. And if you don't believe that, then all you need to do is go back to Matthew 23, where I was reading, as we concluded this morning, where Jesus Christ heard the Pharisees say that if we had lived back then, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. Did you hear his response to that defense on their part? I am angry because these are teachers that have taken upon themselves the arrogant position of questioning, changing, and altering God's word, putting their words on the same page in and around God's word, and teaching something contrary to scripture, 
and teaching things that demote the Lord Jesus Christ and defer the glory that belongs truly to the church of Jesus Christ and give it instead to physical Christ-hating Jews. There is a cause. When David came into the camp of Israel and saw an uncircumcised Philistine, he said, is there not a cause? And there is a cause, brethren. There are enemies of the truth, and they're speaking fables, and we want to destroy them with the word of God. I am sick of hearing about physical Jews. And I'm sick of hearing about dispensationalists chopping up the word of God and creating a second and a third coming when there's only a second coming and creating a seven-year tribulation, postponing Matthew 24 to some far distance in the future and missing much of the message of the New Testament. How many of you know of Jack Van Empey and his pretty wife, Rexella? You ever turn the television on and see those two sitting there at their desk? Every news item that they can pull off the internet, no matter how minor and insignificant, they are always taking that minor and insignificant news piece that they pull off and giving it to their television audience as one more evidence, one more piece of evidence of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And they've been doing this now for about a hundred years. I think it's around a hundred years out of Troy, Michigan. And you know, they just have to keep postponing it, keep postponing it, because nothing that they're talking about has come to pass, nor will it ever come to pass. But they are typical of teachers today who are picking and looking for anything that's going on in our world to try to to try to take that piece of news and create some sensational sermon out of it, or news item that God is doing something with the nation of Israel. He is doing something with the nation of Israel. He's converting Gentiles and adding to it until he comes back. And we are evidence of that. A truly great accomplishment that Jesus Christ can save sinners and unite them in his kingdom. That is a great accomplishment. Now someone will say, when we claim that God has rejected physical Israel, they'll say, but what about... Luke 13.35. So let's go to Luke 13.35. Let me do a, a, a couple of the but what abouts. I don't have very long tonight, and yet I have a great deal of material that I'd like to give you. And again, for those listening to the tapes, this is not an exhaustive study. It's been studied more exhaustively before. This is to keep it short and simple. And if you want more information, we can help you find it very easily. Luke 13, verse 35. Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Whoa, you mean the Israelites are going to say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord? This must be the national regathering of Israel into Canaan or Palestine, isn't it? It must be 3,000 years from then? Or was Jesus through with dealing with the leaders of the temple and was saying he wasn't going to be back until they gave him a proper reception? Turn to Luke 19 and let's see if it was fulfilled or not. 
Luke chapter 19, verse 37. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Indeed, it was fulfilled just a few chapters later after Jesus Christ had withdrawn himself and then came back to Jerusalem. This is how he was received from the Mount of Olives. Amen. What about Romans 11.25? Let's go look at Romans 11.25. We can kill a couple birds while we're here. With a single stone, Romans 11.25. Let's get verse 26, because they don't really quote verse 25 very often. They want verse 26. We'll go back and get it in a second. Verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. See, God is going to save all of national Israel. Well, now it doesn't say national Israel. That's the first thing we need to notice. And then we need to notice who said these words, and how is Paul drawing this conclusion? And so, that's an adverb describing how all Israel shall be saved. As, here is how they shall be saved. As it is written. Well, this is written over in Isaiah. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. How are Jews or Gentiles saved? By Jesus Christ. And how are all Israelites saved that are saved? By Jesus Christ. And how many Israelites will be saved? Turn it, look at chapter 9, verse 27. Romans 9, 27. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Remember this morning from Romans 9, 6, They are not all Israel which are of Israel. There is a national portion, and within that there is an elect portion, and that elect portion shall be saved. It's the remnant. And when we come over to Romans 9.26, so all Israel shall be saved, it's obviously referring to the remnant that Paul has said shall be saved, because the rest of the nation are not the children of the God, they're merely children of the flesh. Now, let's go back and get verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. For this period of the kingdom of God, the elect portion of Israel is partially blinded. You say, when you do that, you make three Israels in Romans 9, 10, 11. You make the nation of Israel, the elect Israel, and a blinded portion of elect Israel. Let's see if the text doesn't even tell us that. They'll all be saved. So we're talking about elect Israel. Is that fair to say? So all Israel shall be saved? In verse 26, verse 27 says, For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes, 
for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Within the elect portion of Israel, that is, the portion of Israel that would be saved, there was a portion that was blind to the gospel and so blind by God's decree. So all Israel shall be saved? Yes, they'll be saved, just like you and I are saved when a deliverer came out of Zion. But someone will say, but verse 26 is in the future tense. It's in the future tense because Isaiah wrote it. 700 years B.C. One of the easiest ways to get confused, or one of the easiest ways to solve a problem with some of these verses, is to look at the tenses and realize that when it's in the future tense, it's the prophet putting it in the future tense. That's why it's future, because he wrote about it so long ago. And Paul is quoting it accurately by keeping it in that tense, but he's explaining its fulfillment in the present tense. There's several of those. I have taught all those in the past, and I'll mention a couple more tonight because they're so important. For instance, after these days, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, Hebrews chapter 8. And someone will say, see, there it is in the future tense, Paul's writing of a future tense new covenant with Israel. That's got to be the millennial covenant. No, that's Jeremiah chapter 31, talking about a new covenant based in Jesus Christ, The Apostle Paul is quoting it, and the whole book of Hebrews is to prove that it's in place, and the old covenant of the Mosaic form of worship is gone. It's the prophetic perspective. If the prophet sees it in the future, he uses future tense verbs. If Paul quotes the prophet accurately, it's going to have a future tense verb. But is it still future tense? No. Now, let's, let's do another one. There's, there's a number of these. Acts chapter 2. God shall pour out of his spirit on all flesh, and they'll all prophesy and see dreams and speak in tongues. Right. Now, what great branch of denominational Christianity in the United States still thinks that that's future tense or happening right now? The charismatics. But it's in the future tense because who wrote those words? Joel. Joel wrote those words in the Old Testament. They were future to Joel. Who quoted those words in Acts chapter 2? Peter. How did Peter use Joel's quotation? As fulfilled with the day of Pentecost. Do you understand? But it's in the future tense. You wrangle with a charismatic who knows his Bible, and he'll point out that it's in the future tense. But you point out who wrote it in the future tense. Paul quoted it, for the present fulfillment of what happened at Pentecost. I hope I made that simple enough that you've got your hand around it like a sword. They missed so many of those, and we're going to run into another one tonight. What about 1948? So what happened in 1948? In 1948, there was a new nation formed in the earth, Israel. And all the prognosticators began saying the Lord's going to come within 40 years. That's a whole other story. They took the 1948 of a nation, 40 years for a generation. Jesus' words in Matthew 24, that all these things shall come to pass on this generation, and said he's got to come before 88. But brethren, we're 12 years past that one. Now a brother this morning, noble heart and all, was suggesting that maybe, maybe it's from the Six-Day War in 1967. So maybe we ought to date it 2007. So since that's seven years away, we should be expecting 
the great tribulation to begin at any time. But, of course, the Lord will come and take us away before that happens. All of that is ridiculous, and I speak as a fool. There's no Bible basis for any of it. They just like to create sensational news items as they look at their Jewish fables in the light of what's going on in the world. Now let's go to the corruption of physical Israel. What we've looked at is the election of it. God chose Abraham, and for 2,000 years, his blessings were on that people. And I will not deny, because the Bible says it. I want to stand where the Bible stands, and it says, Of all the families of the earth, I have only known you. And so for 2,000 years, that was truth. God blessed the descendants of Abraham, and his of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, Solomon, Samuel, Daniel, and the rest were blessed by God. But that was then. Jesus said, as we saw this morning in Matthew 21, the kingdom shall be taken from you and given to another nation that will bring forth fruits. And that was the Gentiles. And it occurred with the ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and the apostles. That was the period of reformation. It took 40 years, and the nation of Israel was reformed. The whole worship was reformed. And the citizens of that kingdom were altered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But I want to talk just briefly about the corruption of physical Israel. They want, they, by they I mean, Darbyites, Plymouth Brethren, Schofieldites, Fundamentalists, Premillennialists, Pre-Tribulationists, Dispensationalists, and all the rest who want to believe in a Jewish-oriented scheme of Bible interpretation and prophecy. They're always looking at physical Jews and watching everything they do. I mean, if one Jew immigrates into Israel, it's, it's, on the, it's on the wire releases. You know, the nation's growing. Even though for the last few years, they've been emigrating faster than they've been immigrating. And you can't blame them, can't you? can you? Wouldn't you rather live in New York City than in Israel? That's where most of them live, is New York City. Paris, other big cities. I mean, why would you want to live in Israel? Anyway, first of all, there isn't a Jewish race. There is no such thing in the world today. Amen. They know it. It's too bad that no one else knows it. When a people will admit that about themselves, why do others want to force something on them that they themselves deny? You can look it up in Jewish encyclopedias or encyclopedias of the world. There is no Jewish race. They have intermarried so frequently. Now, let's just start at the beginning. Did Abraham intermarry? Did did he? What was her name? Hagar. Did that create problems? In Galatians chapter 4, we're going to find some problems. Abraham had two sons. One was rejected and went off, but he was still a seed of Abraham. That's right from the the very root and fountain of the nation of Israel. We come down to 1 Kings chapter 11, or chapter 3, 1 Kings 3. What about Solomon? Did he intermarry at all? Well, about a thousand times. 700, I know some of them weren't ever officially completed, and they were concubines. It It was horrendous. How about if we go into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Do we find in those books that the the Jews had intermarried so many times that they couldn't find pure Jews? They couldn't find pure Jews to be priests? Mm -hmm. That there was a national day of divorce because most of the nation had married foreigners? That was way back in about 
450 B.C. They were having problems like that. Then, if we go into places like 2 Kings 17, we'll find out that Assyria took the Jews out of the land of Canaan and brought in other nations to repopulate the places where they had taken Israel captive. And so we had a group of people called the Samaritans that were half-breeds. So the whole thing was a confused mess before Jesus got here. You say, but Jesus knew his, didn't he? Absolutely. Lineages were good for 2,000 years, from Abraham unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, even the Apostle Paul knew that he was of the tribe of Benjamin because he tells us that in Romans chapter 11. But most Jews even then didn't know because they didn't even know in 450 B.C. And nations that had taken advantage of Israel commonly did things to them that caused further inbreeding. There isn't a Jewish race. Well, what about the people that live in Israel? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. When I say there isn't a Jewish race, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be sensational. It's just a fact. They know it. Which race is it? Is it the black Ethiopian Jews? Or is it the Aborigine Jews of Australia? Or is it the Chinese Jews? Which Jews are the racial Jews that can trace back to Abraham? Who are they? There aren't any, and they know it. They know it and they admit it. It's just amazing that Bible teachers want to come along and force it on them, and then on top of that, believe that these people who know they aren't Jews, but they're going to force them to be Jews, they're God's chosen people that are going to make this great millennial kingdom. Phenomenal. When you stop and think about it. If you were to meet a Jew, and my last boss at Michigan National Bank was an intelligent one, Though even a God-denier, not just a Christ-denier, he was a God-denier too. You should ask them a question if you like to have stimulating conversations. And they won't be offended. Ask them, what kind of a Jew are they? There's only two answers. They're going to be an Ashkenazi Jew, or they're going to be a Sephardi Jew. Sephardi refer, refers to Spanish Jews and is only is less than 10% of the Jews in the world. Those are Jews that ended up in Spain. Not Abra- you know whether they're Abraham's descendants or not, we'll never know and they'll never know because of all the inbreeding that I just referred to. But they're called Spanish Jews and that's just the name for them. 90% of the Jews are Ashkenazi Jews. That's their word. It's not my word. It's not someone else's word. It's not a Bible commentator's word. It's their word. You can look it up in your Encyclopedia Britannica, Americana, Catholic Encyclopedia, Jewish Encyclopedias. Bob Jones has 10 or 15 of them. Go look it up. I've been there. I've done it. They're all got Ashkenazi Jews, constituting 90% of those in the world that call themselves Jews. That is their title and their name. They chose it for themselves. Where does it come from? Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Genesis 10, 1. 
These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus. And the sons of Gomer, and the sons of Gomer, Gomer being a son of Japheth, Ashkenaz. There is the name of the Ashkenaz Jews, right there in Genesis chapter 10. Now if you'll come over in your Bibles to Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51, that's not the only place it's found, but it's, it's the main one. It's also found in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. But we want to go to Jeremiah now. Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah is writing a couple thousand years after Genesis chapter 10. But we've still got the name showing up. Jeremiah 51, 27. Set ye up a standard in the land. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations against her. Call together against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a captain against her. Cause the horses to come up as the rough caterpillars. There we have Ashkenaz again, this time with a CH instead of a K. Now these are kingdoms. So we have a kingdom called Ashkenaz. He was the grandson of Japheth. Now if you're the grandson of Japheth, are you a Jew or a Gentile? You're a Gentile. Are you a Semite in any sense of the word? What's a Semite? A descendant of Shem, one of the other sons of Noah. Okay, let's just keep that straight. Very important and very entertaining. Ashkenaz, a grandson of Japheth by Gomer. And here's his kingdom. And notice the names of the kingdoms around the kingdom of Ashkenaz. What's one that you recognize? I want to make this so simple. Ararat. What nation of the world today holds the mountain called Ararat? Turkey. Turkey is at the far eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, lying in that territory around the Caspian and Black Seas. Are we correct? Okay. This is what the Bible has to say about it. There was a Gentile named Ashkenaz. He established a kingdom that lasted a couple thousand years and was in existence at the end of Turkey, the I mean, in Turkey, at the end of the Mediterranean Sea, around the Caspian and Black Seas. Here's what the Jewish encyclopedias have to say. There was a, pe- there was a people called the Khazars. K-H-A-Z-A-R-S. The Khazars traced themselves back to Ashkenaz and became a significant kingdom in the area that is presently known as Turkey. In 740 A.D., the Khazar Empire was almost totally converted to Judaism. They were the great merchant traders of that part of the world. If you go look at a globe and go back and look at where the world was settled at that time, they were right in the center between so-called Christian Europe, Islam, and the Jews. you you, you got to go look. And the trade routes from China and so forth, back and forth, at the end of the Mediterranean Sea. They all converted to Judaism. They were defeated by the Russians in 1000 A.D. as the Russians continued to grow, and they were moved and pushed out and assimilated 
both together by the Russians because some stayed in Russia and the rest were pushed out by being defeated into Eastern Europe. They were pushed northward. This is not my opinion. This is what the Jews say. These Khazars. These Khazars completely converted to Judaism in 740 A.D. And in 1000 A.D., when the Russians defeated their kingdom, they pushed them up north into what is known as Eastern Europe, which is Ukraine, Russia, Hungary, Romania, and Poland. So that when we came to the 20th century, guess where all the Jews in the world, the the majority of the Jews in the world were located? Where were they? Poland, Romania, Hungary, Russia. That's where they were. Millions of them. And what language were they speaking? They weren't speaking Hebrew. They were speaking Yiddish. These Gentile converts, they're Gentiles, remember, they're Ashkenaz, descendants of Japheth, converts to Judaism made up the Yiddish-speaking Jews of Eastern Europe. And it is those Jews that make up 90% of all the Jews in the world. They know the word. You can ask them. If they don't know it, then they don't even know anything about being a Jew because that's from their own encyclopedias. It was those Jews that started the Zionist movement to recreate a state down there in Palestine near the Red Sea called Israel. That's all I'm going to say on it. I have pages of quotes. All you have to do is really go to your Internet and click up Ashkenaz Khazars. And you'll have reading for a good while. There's lots of books, and they will quote, I did it this afternoon just to prove to myself that it's still all hanging out there. There's lots of men that have taken all the Jewish encyclopedias and just put the quotes out there. You want to look up two words, Ashkenaz, which is the biblical word, and then Khazar, which is the kingdom of the people that descended from Ashkenaz, that converted to Judaism, that became 90% of the Jews in the world. This is not an opinion. This is a fact. And when you pull it from ten Jewish encyclopedias by looking up those two words from five or ten different Jewish encyclopedias, it's overwhelming in its force and weight. But that still doesn't mean very much to me. I'll show you what means something to me. Luke 21. Luke 21. Now, Genesis 10 means a lot to me because I know that Ashkenaz was a Gentile. Do you know that Ashkenaz was a Gentile? That he wasn't a Semite? So when these people do all their loud screaming about anti-Semitism, isn't that hilarious? They're not Semites. They're not Semites. They weren't Semites. Semites are descendants of Shem, and they're descendants of Japheth. In Luke 21, verse 24, Jesus, after describing the destruction of Jerusalem, said, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword. These are the Jews. True physical Jews. They shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Are we still in the time of the Gentiles? Yes. And we will be until Jesus Christ comes back. Does this verse tell me that Jerusalem is trodden down of Gentiles right now? But they say they are Jews. They're Ashkenazi Jews, which are not Jews at all. They're not Semites, they're Gentiles. 
So this verse is fulfilled right here. Luke 21, 24, this verse is fulfilled that Jerusalem is still being trodden down of Gentiles who have come in and taken the city that once belonged to the true people of God. Do you understand how that verse, coupled with our knowledge of Ashkenaz from the Bible, does fit what the Jews admit about themselves? I can tell you on the authority of God's word from Luke 21, 24, that the people in Israel are Gentiles. Because that's how I believe the Bible. If Jesus Christ said this city is going to be trodden down of Gentiles until he comes back, until this particular period that we live in is over, then those people that are over there are Gentiles. And sure enough, they know they are. That is amazing information, but it's just confirmation that God has ended his dealings with the Jews. Now we want to come to the New Testament. And this is the spiritual part that to me is the most important for you to be grounded in. Look at Romans chapter 9 again with me, please. Romans chapter 9. I want to look at a number of statements in the New Testament. I'll not elaborate on them too much, but that show that we, those that have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been bought by His blood, are the true Israel of God and the true Jews. Now we saw that in Philippians 3, 2 and 3, didn't we? As we finished this morning where Paul said, beware of the concision, but then he said of the Philippians, we are the circumcision. And so it is true. Romans 9, verse 1, Paul said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. There Paul is describing his relationship to the nation of Israel and all the blessings they did have from God. You'll not hear me deny that God did not bless them. God blessed them greatly. He blessed them greatly conditionally, and He blessed them greatly unconditionally through the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean through the elect Israel that would benefit from the Lord Jesus Christ. But now look at verse 6, where we were this morning briefly. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither, here He'll help us, If you can't see that clearly, you know that there's two Israels in verse 6. But if you're wondering what they mean, let's go to verse 7. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. God didn't really care that Abraham had another son named Ishmael. What God cared about was the son of promise because that was the son by which he had all of his designs eventually leading to Christ. And so it is Paul is saying there's two Israels. One God doesn't care about. They're just Israelites in the flesh. The others are the children of God. Amen. There's a huge difference here. And he makes the distinction right there in verses nine, chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. There's a spiritual Israel, 
There's a physical Israel, and one is smaller than the other. The spiritual elect children of God are only a part, as verse 27 would tell us, a remnant part of the whole nation. Remember, Isaiah said in verse 27, though the number of the children of Israel might be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant would be saved. But now look further down in Romans chapter 9 to verse 24. In verses 22 through 23, he's been describing God's choice in not saving some, verse 22, and saving others, verse 23. And then in verse 24, he says, Even us, speaking of those that were saved, verse 23, Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in O.C., which is Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Right there you have a statement by the Apostle Paul that God has brought Jews and Gentiles together into his saved family, and in fact, there were Old Testament prophecies describing it. But oh, the dispensationalists want to take all those Old Testament prophecies and point them all the way forward into a millennial kingdom, when in fact, Paul fulfills them right here. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Brethren, open your eyes and open your hearts and let the word of God explain to you that there is a new nation of Israel. Our theme for this day and the title of these sermons is the true Israel of God. Listen to it. Ephesians chapter 2. Let me give a biographical sketch of the man writing Ephesians chapter 2. And yes, sometimes God wants you to know the man doing the writing because the man might have some special gifts. And chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, tell us that the Apostle Paul had a special gift. He had a mystery revealed to him that had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. You can read in verse 4 that it says, Whereby when ye read... Ye may understand, this is Ephesians 3, 4. When ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. So that's the theme that he's saying is a mystery, but it's now revealed. It's no longer a mystery. Right. And he says in verse 9 that his purpose... His ministry is to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now God always knew he was going to do this. God had never planned a millennial kingdom with animal sacrifices for the poor Jews in Palestine. He had always known he was going to bring the Gentiles in. Known unto God are all his works, and boy will that fit in just a few minutes, from the foundation of the world. Acts chapter 15. God always knew it. But there is the Apostle Paul. He was given a dispensation of the grace of God to understand this mystery more than anyone else. 
He says that in the second verse of that third chapter. But now let's read chapter 2. He said, Can you look in verse 3 of chapter 3 and see that in parentheses he says, As I wrote afore in few words. These are his very good words, his few words, about how God has created a new nation of Israel with Jews and Gentiles. Which if he hadn't, we are without hope as we're about to read. Verse 11 of chapter 2. Wherefore, remember, that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Remember, folks, you and I were Gentiles, and we were ridiculed by the circumcised men of Israel as being uncircumcised. Verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ, no knowledge of Christ Jesus whatsoever, neither in prophecy nor in fact, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers and foreigners, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Because God had revealed himself to Israel, Abraham. And a very, very few select exceptions. But he revealed himself to Israel. Therefore, if we were Gentiles, we would have been in this world without God. Without hope. Without Christ. No knowledge of any of it. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. That is what Jesus Christ accomplished in his death on the cross. Verse 14, For he is our peace, who hath made both one. We should be able to close our Bibles and go home. He hath made both one. Both what? Both Jews and Gentiles, one. One what? One anything you want to call it. Body, church, nation, kingdom, house, temple, we'll see. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Was there a difference between Jews and Gentiles? Yep. (laughs) There was a difference in your flesh. There was a difference in your ordinances. There was a difference in your worship, your nation, your language. Huge difference. A great middle wall of partition between us built on the commandments that God had given to Moses that he gave to the people. Huge. That Jesus Christ, having died for us, verse 15 tells us that he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Took twain, that's two, and made one. Verse 16 and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. Jesus Christ first preached to the Jews. The apostles, Peter first in chapter 10 of Acts, and then Paul preached to those that were afar off, the Gentiles. God united them. Brethren, I don't remember this. All men have been saved since Abel 
by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross of Calvary by sovereign grace. Period. Don't ever move away from that. Always. However, God in his dealings with men didn't deal openly about how that salvation occurred. He dealed, he dealt with the nation of Israel in carnal ordinances and commandments. It was their form of worship. Keep that separate from how they were actually getting saved. David wasn't getting saved because he offered more sacrifices of animal blood than someone else. He was saved by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. But as far as those Old Testament saints were concerned, their form of religion, what they knew, what they understood, was a condemning one. And the Gentiles, what hope did they have? None at all. But now all of that was wiped out in the person of Jesus Christ when he came and preached that peace. It's one thing to purchase the peace, but then it was another one to preach the gospel. The gospel is an incredible message to Jews and Gentiles. It's incredible to the Gentiles that there's a God in heaven. That yes, he's the God you've known by his creation, but let me tell you a whole lot more about him. He also has a son Jesus Christ, that's coming to judge the world, but he has saved his people from their sins. The Jews need to hear it because they're still trusting in their animal sacrifices, keeping the law of Moses, and whittling on their flesh. It's a glorious message. And he came and preached peace to the Jews and to the Gentiles that were afar off. In verse 17, For through him... Strangers and foreigners. We can no longer be called Goyim by C.I. Schofield. That is what he calls us. It's in his notes around Genesis 12. Go look up Goyim in the Talmud and see how they like to define that word. They cannot call us strangers and foreigners. Ye are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints. What saints? All the Old Testament saints. We are fellow citizens with them. God has grafted us into the olive tree, even though we were a wild olive branch, and we are partaking of the same root and fatness that they are. That is Christ and His Spirit. We are one. And they cannot call us foreigners or strangers any longer. We are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Amen. Is, was Israel the nation of God? Were they God's people? Yes. But who are God's people now? Jews and Gentiles bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, regenerated by His Spirit, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Notice he pulls in the prophets, he puts in the apostles, and he puts in the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. It's one building, it's fitly framed together, it grows to a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The Ephesian saints by themselves were a part of that kingdom, that household, that body. They were fellow citizens. There is one kingdom. It's just been reformed a little bit by the Lord Jesus Christ. He took it away from the Jews preeminently. Remember, there were some Gentiles in it. And gave it to the Gentiles. And yes, there's a few Jews in it. 
Can you think of some Gentiles in the Old Testament? Like Ruth, Rahab, and others? We're fellow citizens. We should be able to close the Bible. The true Israel of God are Jews and Gentiles united in one body, one kingdom, one household of God, one... Look at over there, we read it last Sunday night, verse 14 of chapter 3. Well, it's verse 15, of whom the whole family in earth and heaven is named. It's all united in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles. There is no more of this national distinction. Did Jesus know about this when he was on earth? Did Jesus know this? In John chapter 10, he said this. John 10, 16. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. That's the body we were just reading about. One fold, one shepherd, the twain have been made one. There's one body. We read this morning in Matthew 21 that Jesus would take the kingdom away from the Jews primarily and give it to the Gentiles. Did you know that Caiaphas the priest even made a prophecy ignorantly about this very thing? In John chapter 11, Caiaphas the high priest, speaking without control of his vocal cords or understanding, made a prophecy that Jesus Christ had to die for the people because one man needed to die for the nation that he could gather together in one, all those that were part of Israel and all those outside of Israel. And he didn't even know what he was talking about. But in John chapter 11, the Lord overcame him and he gave a prophecy of this very thing we're talking about. It's John eleven forty-seven through 52. All the dispensationalists claim that the church, the church, you, the churches of Jesus Christ, the blood-bought Gentiles for the last 2,000 years is a parenthesis. That's their chosen word that is generally used. A parenthesis. That means God's plans were thwarted when he came and the Jews rejected Jesus Christ as king. So therefore he came up with the church age. That's why the 70 weeks of Daniel did not run consecutively. They got through the 69 weeks and then we have the church age for 2,000 years. Then we'll get the 70th week, which is the seven years of the so-called tribulation after Jesus comes. If you can't understand it, I can hardly communicate it to you. It's horrible mess. If I told you, I'll be there in seven hours. But between the sixth and seventh hours, I stuck in 14 days. What would you think of me? Beautiful, brother. I'd be late, and I'd be a liar. If I said I'm going to be there in seven days, Jesus said, there's 70 weeks of years until Messiah the Prince. They say that the church, you and me, and other purchased Gentiles is a parenthesis. God's real plan was Jews and shall be Jews. They say that Jesus Christ came to the nation of Israel to be their king, but they rejected him. You can read Schofield saying it, over and over and over and over in his notes. But I want to tell you something. John 6.15 tells me that they wanted to make him king. Right. Schofield says the Jews rejected him from being king. John 6.15. John 6.15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. 
Do you think Jesus Christ came to be the king of the Jews in the sense that they wanted him to be the king of the Jews? No. Here they tried to force him to be that king, and he left. He wasn't going to be that kind of a king. That the Pharisees came and demanded of him when the kingdom of God would appear. And he said the kingdom of God doesn't appear. It doesn't come with observation like that. The kingdom of God is within you. Totally upsetting the Jewish fables of their mind. These people were nationalistic zealots for Judaism, for Israel. They wanted Israel to be the preeminent nation on earth again. And every time you hear one of these Schofieldites dispensationalists, it's the same thing. They're nationalists. They're zealots for Zionism. Zionism, which is the promotion of a state in Israel. And it has nothing to do with the scriptures or God. Right. He has left them. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Our my Lord Jesus Christ didn't need the Jews to accept him as king. I want to tell you about my Lord Jesus Christ. He is king. Amen. And Pilate knew he was a king. Right. That's why he said, what I have written, I have written. Amen. He may have been a real weak man. He obviously was, but he knew he was a king. And that centurion that put him to death, he knew too. Right. That this indeed was the Son of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 28, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Amen. I'm going to say it for the third time. I know when I repeat myself. Shouldn't I be able to close my Bible? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Let's say that they never intermarried. Let's say that the Ashkenazi idea is wrong. Both of which presuppositions I've just made, are they're both true. But let's say they weren't true. Do you know what? Let's say there was a true Jewish race on the earth. Do you know what the Bible says? They're not Jews. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. If you were a Jew, you praised men for being a Jew because they were the ones that gave birth to you and the ones that mutilated your body. But if you were a true Jew, you were made so by God's sovereign power in regenerating you because it was an operation of the heart where man cannot touch. Did Jesus know this? This, These facts revealed by Paul in Romans chapter 2? Yes, he did because in John chapter 8, he told the Jews that uh, I speak of my father and ye speak of your father. And they knew what he meant by that. And what father was he referring to of them? The devil. And they said, we be not born of fornication. Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you'd believe me. Right. They were not of Abraham their father in any sense that God looks at. Because God looks at the heart of man and his spiritual fulfillment in the true seed of Abraham, which are Christ. John the Baptist had already said that, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, that if those coming out to be baptized of him were putting any confidence in the fact that they were children of Abraham, John the Baptist said to them, Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. 
For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. God wasn't impressed, nor was John the Baptist, nor is this Baptist. And I've already pointed out Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus Christ said that those that worship in synagogues and call themselves Jews are not Jews, but are of the synagogue of Satan, in total agreement with John chapter 8, and he said, I will bring them to worship before your Gentile feet, and to know that I have loved you. That's Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. Come over to Acts 15. Acts 15. Oh, Acts 15 is beautiful. Here's what C.I. Schofield says. Dispensationally, this is the most important passage in the New Testament. We'll agree. Let's agree with them for a change. It's the most important passage in the New Testament. What is Acts 15 about? The council at Jerusalem. What was, why did they need a council at Jerusalem? Because a preposterous thing was happening. Gentiles were being converted by the gospel to believe in Jesus Christ and were being baptized. And that was a preposterous idea to Jews. Do you remember the difficulty that Peter had going to the house of Cornelius? Three times that vision had to come down to Peter with that sheet with the unclean animals and the Lord saying, rise up, Peter, and eat. Peter said, I've never touched anything unclean. Three times. And then, as soon as the vision disappeared and the sheet was drawn up into heaven, he hears the knock at the door, finds out that they're Gentiles that want him. He puts two and two together. Remember, he's operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit finally, because if that would have happened back in Luke 22, something else would have happened, I'm sure. But he put two and two together and realized God is showing me that what he's cleansed, these Gentiles, I better not call them common goyim like Schofield would. I should go with them. And so he did. And then when God poured out his Holy Spirit upon them, he commanded them to get baptized. And they were baptized. Acts chapter 10. Well, listen, brethren. Jews were exclusive and did not allow Gentiles to be part of their nation other than an exception basis. Remember what they thought of the Samaritans, who were half-breeds. Very exclusive. And so, the Apostle Paul comes along in Acts chapter 9, and he's going among the Gentiles preaching. So we come to Acts 15, because look what we have. Some Jewish fable men. Verse 1 of Acts 15, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined, etc., etc. But I want you to notice that Paul and Barnabas fought them. These men came from Jerusalem and told these Gentiles that you need to be circumcised in order for you to be saved. Now that is really messing up the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul Paul called it a concision, a mutilation. Jesus Christ made peace with the blood of his cross. But these Judaizers, still wanting to force Gentiles to act like Jews, were coming down demanding that these Gentiles be circumcised. And so they called together all the elders of the church. And so there's this huge church council. 
And let's not worry about the Council of Nicaea in 323 A.D. held by Constantine. Let's go to the Bible councils. Amen. Here's a council. First of all, Peter speaks. Peter rose up in verse 7 and explains about the conversion of Cornelius and gives some of the details there. He's already had to give it in chapter 11. If you know the book of Acts, which you're going to know it soon, in chapter 11 he's already been called in the carpet once for having gone to Cornelius' household and baptized him. But now he's, now he's explaining again. God made choice by me that I'd be the first one to do this. And he proved it by granting the Holy Spirit. So obviously it's a divine event that's occurring. And then when Peter was silent, verse 12, Barnabas and Paul declared what great things God had done among the Gentiles by them. And then the leader of this council took over, and his name was James. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Now listen to this summary. This is the most important passage in the New Testament for dispensationalists. What's the context? What's the context of Acts 15? The conversion of the Gentiles. Peter's just given his version of his experiences. Paul's just given his. James, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that's Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's the conversion of Cornelius. And to this. This what? The conversion of Cornelius' family. And to this agree the words of the prophets. As it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Those are the words of James. Wherefore, brethren, my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, For obviously, this is in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that God would rebuild the tabernacle of David. And what is the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David in the period of time where it's Jews and Gentiles that make up one body? What is the rebuilding? It's the conversion of Gentiles. This is that. In verse 15, To this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. And that was from the book of Amos. Now they say this is the most important passage. Do you know why? Because ignoring the context, they run into that 16th verse and see the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. And they say, see, God is going to rebuild the Davidic throne again sometime in the future. No, Jesus Christ, according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, is already sitting on his throne. He's been made Lord and Christ over the kingdom of Israel. He's sitting on David's throne. It's the house of David. It's just being built with Gentiles. 
They want to make it the most important passage. We'll agree with them. We think it's pretty important ourselves. But you know what it teaches? It teaches that the building of the tabernacle of David is Gentile conversions. Because it's Jews and Gentiles that make up the new kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know what time it is. Look at Galatians chapter 4. A couple more. I want you to see the New Testament passages that give us all of our confidence and hope that we are the true Israel of God and settle this issue once and for all. Anyone who goes to the Old Testament to get their doctrine is lying to you. Because if it's not taught in the New Testament, it's not taught in the Old. And just read. I'll loan this to anyone. Schofield's book. You can read it. He's always referring to the Old Testament prophets because he wants to take them out of context because there's not a word in the New Testament to support what he believes. Right. Galatians chapter 4, verse 22, it says it is written that Abraham had two sons. Is that written? Do you know that? That Abraham had two sons. Their names were Ishmael and Isaac. The one by a bondmaid. That's Ishmael by Hagar. The other by a free woman. That's Isaac by Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Was one an operation of the flesh? It was Abraham and Hagar thinking they'd create God's children. The other one was by a miracle of God that Abraham and Sarah could even have a son. His name was Isaac. Verse 24, which things are an allegory? Now, I don't use very many allegories because I wasn't commanded to, but when Paul gives us one, I think we should pay attention to it. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. Now, wait a minute. I thought it was Isaac's descendants that went to Mount Sinai. Yes, but we're looking at it through the eyes of the New Testament. From the perspective of the New Testament, that is the rejected form of worship and covenant with God. And so it's compared by this allegory to Hagar and her son Ishmael. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, as in, and is in bondage with her children. Right. What more? Just read it. The Jerusalem Israel, even in the days of the Apostle Paul, was to be compared to Ishmael and Hagar, not to Sarah and Isaac. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Amen. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. And if there ever was a Gentile church, it was the Galatians. Right. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. And so we have those that believe Jewish fables persecuting us today in our doctrine. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are the children of the bondwoman. We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. I know that's a lot of words and a lot of sentences and a lot of verses, 
But do you see its power and its glory for us? We are like Isaac. We're born of the free woman by a spiritual operation of God and by his blessing. And those Jews, those physical Jews that are putting any confidence whatsoever in their flesh or their nation are likened by this allegory to Hagar and Ishmael. And what does the Bible say about them? Cast them out. They shall not be heirs with the son of the free woman. What a blessing. And it's all yours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Look at Galatians 3. Right. Back one chapter. Verse 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Are you a child of Abraham tonight? Amen. You're way ahead of those that are living over there in Palestine. They aren't the children of Abraham. Even if you didn't know about the Ashkenazi Jews. There isn't a race of them. They can't trace themselves back. But we are, and we can trace ourselves back. Because by our lineage to the seed, our relationship to the seed, by believing in Jesus Christ, we are Christ and the children of Abraham. Look at verse 16. Galatians 3.16. If you ever think that we are too picky about the King James Bible... Remember this verse. Amen. Here's why. Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Galatians 3.16 tells us that the promises were in the Old Testament were made to Abraham and his seed, singular not plural. I don't have time any longer tonight, but here's the two chief versions sold today in America, the New American Standard Version, the New International Version. And if you go back in their Old Testament, look up the prophecies given to Abraham, it'll say to Abraham and his descendants. The promises weren't made to Abraham and his descendants, plural. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed, singular, because that seed was one person. And if you look outside that one person of the Lord Jesus Christ, there aren't promises. The promises are realized through him because they're spiritual in nature. Just as we saw this morning, I took the most physical promise of all, the land. And how was the land fulfilled? In heaven, through Jesus Christ. Right, Don't ever complain when you see that we're being very picky about the King James Bible. Do you realize that a very important doctrine is being established from one letter? One letter. The difference between the word seed and seeds, or seed and descendants. What do you think about men that could take a Bible like these two, and translate Galatians 3.16 accurately, just like we have it here. But then go back and translate the Old Testament and put plural nouns in. Is their intelligence below 70? Their IQ below 70? Or are they liars? Or are they worshiping something they shouldn't be worshiping? Can you believe, sitting on a Bible translation committee, 
and knowing that you have a Galatians 3.16 that says every promise made to Abraham was to his seed singular, and then going back there and signing off on the book of Genesis where the promises are to Abraham and his descendants. Do you all follow that? That is horribly wicked. This is one of the places you want to remember to take people. Galatians chapter 3. Isn't that beautiful? But look at verse 29. It'll make it a little better. Let's get verse 28. Let's get verse 27. Let's get verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. In Jesus Christ there isn't Jew or Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Ye are all how many? One One in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are the heirs if we're Christ. Now there it's the singular promise, but when we go back to verse 16, it's all the promises. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed. That's enough for tonight. For those who want to look further, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10, through 10, where the Apostle Peter preaches the very same thing, that there's a living temple made with living stones, and it's combined of Jews and Gentiles into one body Amen. for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those who look in Acts chapter 28 and say that the hope of Israel is some future millennial kingdom. But the Apostle Paul is the one that wrote the words hope of Israel in Acts chapter 28. And in Acts chapters 23 and 26, he told us what the hope of Israel was. It was the reason he was on trial, and it was the reason he was in a Roman prison, for the hope of Israel. And what was the hope of Israel? The hope of Israel was the resurrection of the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ. King Agrippa, should it be thought a thing incredible to you that God would raise the dead? That's the hope of Israel. There is no hope of Israel for some future millennial kingdom. The hope is the resurrection from the dead. That's why when Abraham, when God said to Abraham, go in the length of it, go in the breadth of it. Look northward, southward, eastward, westward. I'm going to give it all to you. We know from Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham understood that promise as being heaven. And he didn't want the land. If he'd have wanted land, he'd have gone back to Mesopotamia, Hebrews 11 says. What he wanted was a better country, a heavenly city, whose builder and maker is God. Those are the promises we have. That's the hope of Israel. We are the Israel of God. The kingdom of the the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of which He is the head, of which we are a part of. In the year two thousand, we are the true Israel of God. We are the seed of Abraham, through Jesus Christ. We inherit the promises. They're spiritual promises. They're glorious, and they greatly exceed some kingdom in Palestine with animal sacrifices because they're heaven itself and the presence of God forever. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.